0: This episode is sponsored by the ECMC Foundation, which supports building a post-secondary education system that works for all learners through its grant-making focus areas of college success and career readiness.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Key with IHE. I'm Paul Fain, the host and a news editor at inside higher ed. For this week, I spoke with two experts with broad perspectives on the entrepreneurial and ed tech sides of post-secondary education, as well as on international students. The goal of those conversations was to get a sense of what they're watching most closely for the fall amid so much uncertainty. First up was John Fillmore, the chief strategy officer for Chegg, a learning platform company that was formerly focused on textbook rentals, but now offers credentials, online tutoring and much more. Fillmore formerly worked for the
0: state of California as a planning and research official focused on education and economic development. And I think the really smart ones are going to say, how do I think of exporting? An American university education globally online. I also spoke with Doug Becker, the founder and former CEO of Lori Education,
1: a large higher ed provider with a global footprint. These days, Becker is leading Centana, a joint venture with Arizona State University that's seeking to create a global network of universities.
2: And so I, I would say as much as the sector will be rocked over the next year or two and permanently changed, I do think fundamentally the core for most universities, not all, will still be very much
1: uh, similar to what it is today. Let's get the conversation started. All right, I am speaking with and looking at John Fillmore. How you doing, John?
0: I'm doing all right. How are you today, Paul?
1: Pretty well. Thanks for making time for us. Really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So a lot of uncertainty. In the world these days, in higher education, no exception. Given your your interesting perspective uh, from the d- different roles you've had in the past, where you are now, what are your thoughts about the level of of shakeup we're we're looking at for this fall?
0: Well, I, I think the cliche that's come out, and like a lot of cliches, there's there's truth to it, which is why everybody keeps saying it is. There hasn't really been an enormous shakeup as a result of everything that we've seen from COVID. I I think it's much more an acceleration of trends that have been ongoing. You know, I'm actually in the bucket of folks who, you know, I would be absolutely shocked if you saw these, you know, 15 or 20% reductions in college enrollment that some people have predicted this fall. Uh, If you look at the FAFSA data, right, what are people actually applying for money for? That's only down about 3%. Uh, I think that's probably likely for the U.S. And you're going to see a much more significant impact in foreign student enrollments. Uh, But again, those are are trends that have been ongoing. Um, We have an administration federally that has not been terribly open to foreign students coming in and visa processing. And that is now being extended with everything that you're seeing with COVID and restrictions on travel, as well as natural student nervousness about what the fall is going to look like you know, my guess is you're gonna see a little bit of an enrollment drop. You're gonna see an even bigger drop in tuition revenue uh, because one of the underreported things, which your publication has been great about talking through is it's not just foreign student enrollments, it's that foreign students tend to be full pay. And so while they're, you know, six or 7% of total enrollments in the country, you know, they're probably more like 14 to 15% of actual tuition revenue. You know, as you well know, uh, you probably can't name me two dozen schools in the country that can afford to lose 10 to 15% of their tuition revenue uh, and keep operating business as usual. All of those things, you know, and then you add in states are under greater fiscal pressure than they were even in the Great Recession, which saw an enormous cut to higher education support, which ironically enough is what precipitated all of the reliance on foreign student enrollments. So you're gonna have the cuts there. And I think it all comes down to over time, schools are going to be more resource constrained. Uh, You're gonna see less academic support, less student support than they have provided in the past. And then you're going to have, you know, these different tiers of schools where, you know, to be quite frank, you know, the University of California, Berkeley is high profile enough that they're always going to find students who want to fill up their seats. You know, without naming specific colleges, the John Fillmore universities that, you know, not a lot of people know about, uh, but are still charging a forty or $50,000 sticker price tuition uh, that are going to be in the most trouble. And, and again, maybe not this year, but over the next few years, you're going to see 10 to 25% of those schools either go out of business or have to merge in order to be there. And with with no offense to a lot of really hard work that's going on from smart people at at all of these kind of traditionally in-person schools, you know, it's a farce to think that a school that has just in the last literally three months started to figure out how they're going to do some sort of online or hybrid learning model is going to achieve what, you know, someone like a Southern New Hampshire University has mastered over, literally decades of working through this model and doing it with a pedagogical view of what actually leads to good student outcomes. So I think it is much more likely that the online models or the hybrid models you see this fall are going to be an awful lot closer to what you saw this spring than they are to be close to what what a Southern New Hampshire's done. Where I think the really exciting and, and optimistic side of you would look at it is to say, again, it's an acceleration of a trend, right? If you looked 20 years ago, you know, if somebody did online dating, they were thought of as kind of a pervert. You go now and it's just thought of as that's the most efficient way you can actually find someone who's going to match, you know, your personality profile. In reality, online schooling is, I think, going to go very similarly in that, 20 years ago, it was seen as this is something that's like a correspondence course. And of course, it can't be high quality. You've had leaders like Southern New Hampshire already take that out. Western governors already take that out. Arizona State, Purdue Global, you know, a lot of great institutions that are really pushing this forward. I think what you're going to see now is a mass acceptance that there is a lot of reason that online can be great and blended can be great. Right, so I, I went to the University of Oregon for my undergrad, so go Ducks. But the reality is I, I sat in an intro to business course that had 350 students at it staring at the same professor. And he was an engaging and really thoughtful professor named Dave Dussault. Uh, but the reality is that could have just as easily been online and probably more effectively with easier access and more, uh, more interactive content that I could have clicked on and looked through while I was in that school. So I think that's where you're gonna see a lot of the innovation as well as a lot of it's gonna come internationally, right? Just as you saw as, from a global and developing country standpoint, as they've adopted new technologies, it hasn't been adopt the American model to take on new technologies, right? Internet access became mobile first in many countries because it was just simpler than having to get broadband access and desktop computers for everyone. I think similarly, you're going to see as online education becomes more important, you're going to see a lot of innovation on the global side of this because these are countries and places that don't have the resources to build up the giant infrastructure of the American university system. They're going to focus on how do we get the best education, the best skilling, the best job preparedness for our students at the lowest possible cost, and that's going to be online.
1: Let's stay away from the early adopters, the most successful online institutions, the SNUs, the WGUs, the ASUs are all are up right now in enrollments. And I would suspect that will continue in, in coming months. But let's let's stick right. with the John Fillmore U tranche, you know, regional publics, uh, smaller privates. Are there any creative solutions that you're hearing about to help them still serve international students in a creative way i mean your point is a good one you can't really take that sort of budget hit when you're looking at maybe not even getting another stimulus to cover the big hole in state funding i mean are they just completely out of luck here with their national students
0: i think some of them to be totally frank, are just going to be out of luck. And you see a lot of schools right now investing deeply in things like chat-based connectivity to try and reach out to their domestic and international students to say, hey, you really should continue even if we're just online. But I think, you know, not to belabor the snooze and the ASUs, But I actually think there's a model they have started internationally as well that a lot of these regional universities are going to adopt, right? You see ASU doing a partnership now in India. You see Southern New Hampshire doing some work in Latin America. I think what you're going to see is a little bit less of the how do we enroll 200 students at full pay from international. And I think the really smart ones are going to say, how do I think of exporting? an American university education globally online to countries and places that are willing to pay for it, right? And that's going to mean the ones that are really forward-thinking. It's going to mean a different type of curriculum in some cases that's more skills-focused than what has been typical in United States liberal arts institutions. It's going to mean at a lower cost price because you're going to be competing with you know upstart education companies in these local markets that know the local markets and their local market demand and you're going to have to see it be much more flexible than what even a lot of the online schools have done right so we we've gotten students you know talking to us at Chegg as we we reach out to our student base all the time about how you have international students who are expected to wake up at three in the morning because even though their course was online the course was online and synchronous so it was set to you know, Eastern Standard Time and they just had to get up and do this in order to be a part of the class. You're gonna see a, a massive change in the ways that happens. You know, and I, I think the reality is, Paul, you've been around this in, this industry long enough to know, most of the institutions aren't going to be fast enough moving or forward enough thinking to really do that. They're gonna try and take their model that exists, put an online brand on it, you know, work with the two you or someone, and then say, look, this is an online program. Rather than fully rethinking what it has to be in order to be successful outside of our borders.
1: Well, you mentioned to you, and uh, you know, for this episode, I'm speaking with Doug Becker of Santana as well. I mean, what, what are, if, if you're a resource uh, strapped institution, you're, you're not able to develop a flexible, robust program as quickly as you need to, do, do you reach out to a to you or another partner to help you do it?
0: I mean, I think you're seeing it in, in obviously, to use a public company, and you can see their numbers. I think there, there's a no-brainer that, at least in the short term, you have to do this if you haven't prepared for it, because you're competing with other schools that are out there and have been doing this for a long time and have done much more to build a sustainable model. You know, we've talked with our students within Chegg, and, you know, you see the vast majority of students are massively unsatisfied with what online learning, and I air quote that online learning, really was in the the spring. And the reality is for a lot of those students, they couldn't even access it. You know, We talk about inequities in education, Uh, at least according to our students, 25% said broadband connectivity and reliance or reliability was something that was a big issue for them doing this in the fall. So you have to work with partners who have worked through and solved these problems many times before I think, again, the long-term though is, you know, whether a a 2U or another of the OPM players comes up with the model or schools have to do it on their own, as you extend out more and more to international, you've just gotta realize that it's not American size fits all, it's gotta be customized to what the local market needs.
1: Speaking of local markets, you know, I have to say, a lot of what I'm hearing makes me feel even more concerned about the kind of have and have not divide in american higher education i think it's a relevant concern though uh, um, you know and not a new one either it's an accelerated one as you say um but you know one of the arguments i hear from open access college folks community colleges for years both is that they know their local markets they can retool programs to meet local job economies you know we don't even know what a lot of the jobs are going to be in this recovery uh, and they they know how to serve their students. They can be flexible. Um, what do you make of that advantage when you think about uh the other challenges and barriers those institutions face?
0: I think there is a a place in the future for the community colleges, you know, whether that's a Cal State Sacramento, which you know, I, I've lived and been around and worked with many people who got great educations there, or it's the you know, Portland Community College, which, you know, at another point in my career, I had great experiences with with PCC grads. The question for those and the ones that are going to be successful are truly going to be about how fast can they retool and meet market demands because the skill demands of the market are changing faster than they ever have. You know, there have been more than one local chambers of commerce that I've spoken with that have said, we spent two and a half years working with our local community college system on building up what the curriculum should be to serve the local employers. And by the time that curriculum was finally ready to launch, the local employer needs had actually changed. Those schools that are going to be successful are going to have to adopt much more of kind of the innovative ed tech model of driving this, right? And that's also, you know, part of why, both globally and in the US, you're seeing an explosion of ed tech investment because I think more and more people are realizing that schools are going to be challenged to do it on their own and there's going to be more need for public private partnerships and for schools reaching out to innovative players to figure out how do I actually make sure that my students are ready to get a job.
1: I had Paula Blank, the president of Southern New Hampshire on on this program uh, a few weeks ago and, and even he, was saying like this, we had a three to five year plan here and now it's three months and it's been hard, <laughs> you know? And it, again, it's hard to be optimistic if you're, you know, they have such a head start on so many things. Um, that e- even for them, the pace of change here, and we're not just talking, I mean, I, I took your last point as the pace of change in, in jobs and skills even before this, let alone like, how am I gonna plan for a fall when I don't know if I'll have students, I don't know, if we're ready to do high flex. Um, you know, it, when you look at institutions that, that are swimming upstream, what, what sort of tools in their toolbox can they really rely on this fall to do the best with what they have, which is no doubt a tough situation. I mean, uh, what, are there best practices you've seen in terms of an institution being able to offer a couple of options to students so they have something that'll work?
0: I think it goes to more a core principles element on this, right? The places that are going to be successful, and look, why has Chegg been successful as an educator, right? And We educate millions of students every year. The ones that have done it have really put on a lens that have said, how do you be student first, right? With all of the many stakeholders that are going to be out there across a university system, it's very, very difficult for a college president, but uh, she or he has to think of it as, what's the best answer for the students? And that's going to be, how are things more on demand? How are things available online in whatever modality the students are going to need? right? How are they flexible to whatever the student needs at that point in time? How are you making sure that whatever the answer is, the student is getting the academic support they need when they need it? right? One of the reasons Chegg exists is because the reality is most of our students need academic support at 10 o'clock at night, not between the hours of, you know, 10 and 12 Tuesdays and Thursdays. Getting that support for them anytime they need. Those are going to be the things that actually distinguish what are the schools that, that can, within this, actually keep the students they currently have and have a reason that other students are going to want to join. Them. Again, I, I tend to be a short-term pessimist and a long-term os- optimist it's going to be very hard for these schools to do in the the space of the fall. I mean, especially the ones that are trying to bring students back on campus. In addition to everything else that we've already talked about, you also have to be thinking about literally almost an infinite number of possibilities in terms of what happens with COVID. And, you know, as the brilliant philosopher, Mike Tyson once said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face and you can have the you know, the best 500-point plan you think is possible on COVID, but what happens the first time, you know, someone in a, you know, residential hall, even if they're in single rooms, comes down with COVID? Are you going to quarantine that whole hall? Are you going to quarantine not just that whole hall, but everyone in that hall who has interacted with anybody else? Are you going to quarantine everyone who's been in a class with that student that has come down with COVID? you know these are are massive problems that the institutions are trying to figure out and my point on that is they're trying to figure out that giant problem in and of itself while also trying to figure out how do we play catch up on everything that everyone else has learned about online education i think you're going to see by nature a really messy situation there for the next 12 months but again The best innovations in education have all come because people saw problems firsthand and started companies or started a new way of doing it. And so I I do think if you look five years out, this is going to make us much faster at meeting the skills challenge that, you know, America and the world is going to need because you're going to see much more disruption around people understanding that the traditional model just doesn't work and it just doesn't scale.
1: Well, I think it's safe to say, I'll make one prediction. Uh, there is going to be a lot of change in the next uh, stretch. And, uh, you know, uh, you've given us a lot to think about. And, you know, just want to, to flag one point you made. I feel like in all the discussion about budgets, uh, be they influenced by public revenue declines, international students, um, and the the struggle to get quality online offerings, let's not forget about student supports online. And, and uh, you've you've raised that, and I feel like, been out there but i haven't heard as much about that in this crisis so i appreciate you uh you flagging that one and uh for sharing your expertise with
0: us today very happy to be here paul thank you so much for having me
1: keep in touch thank you does inside higher ed's wide-ranging coronavirus coverage help you stay informed show your support by becoming an insider our membership program and enjoy special benefits and offers your support helps us continue our journalism and free access to all of our daily news and opinions. To learn more and join, please visit www.insidehighered.com backslash membership. I'm speaking with Doug Becker of Santana. Doug, thanks so much for doing this. Glad to be here. Uh, you've had an interesting run in higher ed. Uh, I wonder if you wouldn't mind just giving us the, the brief skinny of your bio uh, and where you've been. Well, I have spent uh, more than
2: 20 years now in higher education and about 30 years in education as a whole, always on the entrepreneurial side. You know, today we talk about EdTech. 20, 30 years ago, we didn't really have a term for it. And it's been really fun to see how the industry has evolved. For most of the last 20 years, my passion and my work was in creating and building Laureate Education, which became a global higher education company, still is today a publicly traded company based in my hometown of Baltimore. And uh, Laureate was really my, based on my fascination with um, how one could bring the benefits of scale to, to universities, especially small private universities in emerging markets where students just don't have a lot of choices and where resources typically weren't being invested into private institutions. So we, that was a great experience. We learned so much. Uh, Laureate grew to about 70 universities in 29 countries, uh, over a million students, and um, over 70,000 employees. So
1: I I definitely had a tiger by the tail. Yeah, Um, I was always just stunned by the scope of it.
2: Well, the scope was great, and, and what I'm most proud of is the quality of the individual institutions there are institutions that within laureate today Now, Laureate's strategy has pivoted um, significantly since then. And, and I retired from the company about two years ago. Um, but I can tell you there are institutions within laureate today that are not only the largest institution in their country, um, but would also be absolutely uh, considered one of the best. And uh, many that have re- uh, received, for example, a U.S. institutional accreditation, um, many that have plaudits from the local regulatory framework so it's really it was never a goal of just getting big it was about proving that excellence and scale could be done well together and uh and honestly what what interested me as i was leaving laureate after 20 years uh and i love the company and love the people um i reflected on what i could think of in a new model um that would be different than what i had done at laureate but still in this vein of supporting the development of private institutions uh, to give students options in countries all over the world where they need and deserve it. And uh, the Laureate model is still fundamentally based on bringing all these benefits to institutions that they can own or invest in. And it occurred to me there are many interesting institutions, including government-linked institutions, private nonprofit institutions, and private for-profit institutions that just don't want to be owned by somebody else. And so Sintana is in essence, a network intended to bring benefits of scale, access to technology uh, and the capability set of a really remarkable global team to institutions that want to make a long-term commitment to be a part of something bigger than themselves, uh, but not to be over by it. And uh, we started Sintana in partnership with Arizona State University. Another distinction from what I did at Laureate Uh, Laureate is and was a global network of universities with a corporation at the center. And the Sintana Alliance, as we call it, is a network of universities with a university at the center. And in this case, a remarkable university, ASU, as as you and others know, uh, ranked number one for innovation in the US for five or six years now in a row, the largest public university in the United States, one of the great leaders in online as an early adopter in that uh, niche and field. And, uh, and an incredible partner uh, in
1: Santana. You know, as, as we've reported and others have as well, a good time to be an established online entity to know how to do it right um, as you're dealing with so much uncertainty. You have an interesting perspective, uh, global, uh, lots of history uh, dealing with rapid economic transformation in a lot of the places Laureate and Santana operate. I hate to ask you to speculate, but can you, I'm going to, uh, would you mind talking about what level of disruption, market shift, uh, just immense change we might be seeing in the next six months in this country?
2: I think it's, of course, it's going to be huge. I think everybody sees that. Um, But of course, we've all speculated on changes for years. And people have talked about the need to bring the cost of education down, micro-credentials, MOOCs, all of these things. And they all have given enough time do eventually seep into the system and make change. But let's face it, though, there is something fundamentally powerful about universities, especially research-intensive universities that contribute to the discovery of knowledge, but but even, of course, just great teaching universities. Um, There are so many reasons why people seek a university education beyond just the credential. And so I, I would say as much as the sector will be rocked over the next year or two and permanently changed. I do think fundamentally the core for most universities, not all, will still be very much uh, similar to what it is today. Maybe a little bit smaller for some institutions, a little bit uh, less demand. Certainly students are gonna expect and demand more flexibility. Um, Universities are gonna have to get over this sort of perilous time where they may not be able to be face-to-face with students and students are not sure that a fully online education is worth the same investment of time and money as what they signed up for. So I guess my thought would be, yes, it's huge, and yes, some may not survive, but I would go back to the idea that there are a lot of students and parents that really are seeking something around that university experience, including the ability to help them choose a career, uh, get an internship, the pastoral care to give them the chance to mature, a safe place to go, I reflect on my time at Laureate. Our biggest market for many years uh, has been Mexico. In Mexico, half of all universities, well, let me put it this way, half of all high schools are on the premises of universities. Why is that? Because universities are considered a safe place. And so it's just interesting how many different ways people need and use a university for what it can contribute to their communities. So I'm happy to speculate on how the change might look, but let me just pause there for a moment. Well,
1: that was really good stuff. And I, you know, I feel like this, like you say, we knew a lot of change was coming, demographic cliff, price pressure, you name it. But the speed of it now is unusual. And you know, I wonder, having dealt with rapid transformations in countries you've operated, you mentioned Mexico, what would be your advice to some of your peers here in this country who are doing scenario planning, uh, like the likes of which I've never done?
2: I guess the first thing I would recommend, and it was always a guiding theme for us at Laureate, and, and now, of course, for me at Santana, is to be incredibly focused on what your customers want and need. Uh, recognizing, of course, you know, universities have a unique relationship with their customers, and they are often forming and guiding their customers. Um, but that often means that some people in the university sector don't remember to ask the question of what do their customers actually want. And I think that's something really important for universities to do. So there are students today that are really questioning very deeply, not whether they ever want a university degree, but whether now's the time to get it. And, and that's because of questions about safety, but especially the value equation of what it means to be offered something online. And while we all know online education can be great, we also know that when a university has only had a few months to prepare for it, it probably isn't. And we also know that great for a graduate student with a family and a job, uh, learning part-time online, which is where the majority of fully online is, has been done, is not the same as what my 19-year-old daughter, uh, who just completed her freshman year in college and partly in our house, uh, it, I think what she expects out of an education is different. And so there will be a lot of students that will say, I don't. I, I may take a year off, I may go to a different institution, um, so I think universities need to be flexible and they need to be attentive to that value equation. And there's a lot that they can do. So I'm a big fan, for example, in, in internships. Um, we did a lot with it in Laureate. I do a lot with it in our planning for Santana. And I'm a big fan of it even for my, my own kids as they're trying to develop. And uh, I think universities, the ability to offer virtual internships would be so different, uh, a different way of, of offering value during this Moment. And of course, we know that students may be about to come back to campus. Although even that will never be the same, or that will not be the same. But we know that students at universities also want to be connected to the alumni. So right now, you have alumni trapped at home at wonderful universities. Why not ask them to offer some time with students? To uh, and that can be part of a virtual internship or really just uh, just a, a connection point. Because again. If you are a university, especially the ones we tend to all think of with brand names, um, students are looking for more than just instruction in that experience. And so the second point I'd say is, of course, flexibility is going to be really key. We know that even for students who do return to the classroom, those classrooms will probably be spaced physically differently. Um, Students' time on campus will be different. And the demands of society on maintaining safety will be high and scrutiny will be high. So I think the need for flexibility uh, will be strong there, and that's where online can be helpful. Universities can uh, feather in online instruction even for students who are on their campuses as a way of relieving the, the need for space and, and the change
1: in the space utilization. The virtual internship piece got me thinking. You know, We at Inside Higher Ed and others have written for a long time about the potential for micro-credentials in a stackable pathway. Do you think this time might give that a big boost, you know, as students look to do different things? It
2: is an interesting question. I think it just depends so much on the students. So much of my work is outside of the United States where the price pressure is is very different. Um, Students don't, students and their parents are really making hard choices because there aren't student loans in most countries. There isn't a philanthropic source of income for universities in most countries, so it's all tuition. As a result, the tuition at the Laureate Universities, the Santana Universities, most universities outside the United States, is much lower than it is here. And therefore, and yet very important as to what people can afford. And families who have to choose which of their kids will go to university, not uh, where they will all go. Uh, In that context, though, I think that there's still, there's many countries where university education has not tipped over the tipping point on the value equation. Um, So my first point would be, yes, I agree with what you said. I think that will tend to be a a more US-centric, not only, but more US-centric where the value equation has been strained to pass the breaking point. And then I think, of course, it also just depends on the student. If you are, again, a working adult professional, um, you have so many interesting choices for online, for competency-based, for credit for prior learning experience, There are a lot of things that are available to help solve the problem uh, that are gradually sort of being accepted and understood by students and institutions.
1: Obviously, we've mentioned that in Arizona State, for example, uh, knows what it's doing online and and has some advantages in this environment. You obviously are in the business of partnerships. What are some of the uh, factors you think your peers in this country might consider as they mull whether or not to partner up to try to be more flexible?
2: Well, it's interesting. Arizona State is very good at partnering. And uh, and they are, I'd say, sort of partner-friendly in that uh, they're willing to engage and consider a lot of bold ideas. And then obviously they don't do many of them, but they but they do the great ones, uh, I'd like to think, like Santana. And that was really a bold idea. They have been so successful with online, with research, with the U.S. Uh, recognition for their innovation. Uh, but I know that Michael Crow and his colleagues want ASU to also engage more globally. And they saw that given the work that I've done in the past and the team I assembled, that Sintana could be almost a, a, an execution arm for them in complex international projects that they might not themselves have the resources to pursue. Um, so I have found, I found them to be an extraordinary partner. And the, I'd say the key lesson to me in this type of partnership, first, I would encourage any any company that's partnering with the university to realize that you are inherently more flexible than the university partner. And and I say that recognizing that I think I have probably the most flexible university partner out there. But think of ASU, it's vast. It is a public institution with enormous social responsibilities to make education accessible and affordable. They're a vast research enterprise, and they are dealing with these extraordinary issues around how to reopen, imagine a university with almost 100,000 physical students, students that want to be there physically, in addition to now 50, 60,000 fully online students. So I, I wake up every morning thinking, what can I do for them? Because they have so much on their plate. And I know they appreciate that. Um, so this is more advice to the people who want to be their partners, which is be recognize you're flexible and you need to support these institutions. And obviously, you hope in return you build trust and support and create something um, mutually beneficial. And then the other point I'd say is that you need to really understand that university. Each university has different culture and different decision-making framework and different strengths and weaknesses, different political environment. Um, We set up Centano on the ASU campus. A lot of universities partner with institutions that are not located physically with them. That was the extent of our commitment to ASU. And even though with ASU's support, we do intend to have other university partners, they're our first and primary partner, uh, and through their enterprise partners arm, they're a shareholder in our company. And, we, and so we also wake up every morning wanting to make sure we understand what's happening there, what's changing, and how we can be a part of it. Um, so those are the things that, that I find interesting. And then for universities to partner, I would say it's about alignment of interests. Making sure that you really trust your partner, making sure that you really can be very honest about what your objectives are and ask them to do the same. And uh, I think if, if you can accomplish those points of view on both sides, you can build a lasting partnership that can be very successful. If not, what you could end up with would be a superficial partnership that just doesn't make an impact or doesn't last.
1: Doug, thanks so much for sharing your time and expertise. Laureate and Santana are, are such fascinating models. We'll definitely be revisiting Centana. Uh, and uh, also, congrats on getting through an unusual spring semester in your home. Thank
2: you very much, Paul.
0: This episode is sponsored by the ECMC Foundation, which supports building a post-secondary education system that works for all learners through its grant-making focus areas of college success and career readiness.
1: That's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week, and I hope you'll join me.